As I get older, I think more about my health and my mortality and what I could do to live well for life. I mean, as a parent, I want to watch my daughters grow older and if the circle of life blesses them, I want to be a grandparent. I can bring love and stories and mentorship. I want to hold those kids over my head into my 80s. As a husband, I want to dance like no one's watching. As an individual, I want to continue to do more and to be more. I have no interest in retiring from work. Why would I? I love what I do. I want to write a book, fill my mind with knowledge, be a better friend, a better Canadian, and be better at the sports that I do. Just because I'm getting older, I want to be a better golfer and yoga. I took up surfing last winter in Costa Rica. My board's the size of an aircraft carrier, confined to white water, so I want to get to on the line on a shorter board. I want to be stronger, more impactful social justice warrior to defend small business owners and the need for an economy to earn its way forward versus just borrowing. An economy that can support marginalized while encouraging all to follow a path marked by purpose and passion. So much I want to do and much comes down to my health, my intellectual, emotional and physical well-being. I know that chance to draw the cards I can't control, but there's so much of my health I can. Joining me today on Chatter That Matters is Sean Francis. I'll get to his resume in a moment. But what I can tell you, he's one of the world's authorities on what you can do to live well for life. And what Sean has to say over the next 40 minutes, well, it can change your life. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My special guest today is Sean Francis. Sean is the chair and CEO of MedCan, headquartered in Toronto. MedCan is a global leader in assessing their clients' overall well-being, inspiring them to live well for life. MedCan's acknowledged by Deloitte as one of Canada's best managed companies, and they've earned platinum status for their consistency in being so. Sean's also the host of the Eat, Move, Think podcast, and he's been recognized as a top 40 under 40, chair of the Young Presidents Organization Ontario chapter. He founded True Patriot Love, the Canadian Foundation to support military members, veterans, and their families. Sean's been awarded the Canadian Force Medallion for Distinguished Service, the military's highest recognition for a civilian. And Sean participates in endurance sports. He co-led an expedition to Everest Base Camp in the summit of Island Peak, a 6,189-meter Himalayan peak adjacent to Mount Everest. And on that expedition, 12 injured Canadian soldiers, and their success was raising funds for the True Patriot Love Foundation and Injured Veterans. It was the subject of a national primetime documentary named March to the Top that aired on CBC. Add to that a best-selling author of the book, Eat, Move, Think, The Path to a Healthier, Stronger, Happier You. Sean earned his Bachelor of Science with Honours and Merit from the United States Naval Academy, an MBA from Wharton, proud husband and father of the three sons. Sean, thank God I'm healthy. That's one introduction. Welcome to Chatter the Matters. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tony. So much of your career has been focused on preventative health, helping people be healthier by showing them what they can do to help themselves. Why did you choose that path in life? I wish I could tell you that it was more uh, directed, but the fact of the matter is my dad's a physician entrepreneur and found at MedCan in 1987 and had some predecessor uh, healthcare companies. So I grew up around healthcare and him as a business person and a physician. So I knew a lot about how healthcare worked as a child, but never, frankly, contemplated a career in it. Uh, you mentioned in my introduction that I went to the U.S. Naval Academy. Uh, so I was briefly, I was commissioned in the Canadian Army. And I thought I would be in the military for life, but I contemplated at least a few years. That that didn't materialize. And, and I ended up going to Morgan Stanley uh, in New York City for a few years. 
I didn't start off in healthcare, but in part of that journey of trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up, so to speak, uh, I did end up coming to work uh, with my dad in the early 90s. And it was really there that I got into the healthcare uh, business. At the time, it wasn't, you know, we did do preventive screening, worked with major employers with on occupational health matters and disability claims. We, we brought telehealth to Canada back in the mid-90s, you know, pre-internet. And the clinical side of our business was actually quite small, but something that I always thought was, was a great business because people loved it and wanted us to be their doctor and wanted lifestyle tips, but it was a really small enterprise. At any rate, I ended up leaving the business in the late 90s for a health tech startup in San Francisco. It was the commercialization of the internet as we now know it. That was really a pivotal experience for me for, for a few reasons. One is I had the opportunity to work in a startup. Our CEO had come from a Fortune 100 company where he was the president. And so I got to work with the Fortune 100 management team, you know, somebody that that didn't have that experience. So that was an incredible learning experience. I met a ton of people in U.S. healthcare, and I had a great job. Uh, so good that I thought, oh, gosh, I should get a, a business degree because I'm the head of business development and strategy for this unicorn company. So I ended up going back to the Wharton School part-time. I needed to write a independent study, and I chose to do a business plan and just needed good material. So I ended up choosing MedCan, but not the MedCan I had left, but one I might rejoin. Uh, you know, what would the business look like if I was running it? So I created the business plan around that. So I want to get back to MedCan in a minute, but you just sort of glanced over. You went to the U.S. Naval Academy. That's a tough place to get in, and certainly for a Canadian. How did you find your way in there? It is difficult to get in, especially for a Canadian, because they don't normally let in non-Americans. At any rate, I visited the Naval Academy with my dad, actually, back when I was in high school, more as a tourist. And I asked somebody there, you know, can a Canadian you know, attend? And, and they said, you know, no. <laughs> for American citizens, on further research, we discovered that, in fact, they do invite Canada every year. And, and it literally ends up on someone's desk, and it's never reciprocated. So I recall very distinctly uh, because your first day in Annapolis, Maryland, where the academy is, you know, the parents are dropping you off. I had a gym bag, the sergeant major saying to my parents, you know, he doesn't need his gym bag. And I'm like, well, I've got, you know, underwear and a toothbrush. And they're like, no, no, you don't understand. We're going to give you everything. They shave your head, they drug test you, and they put you in a sailor outfit, which is actually like a pretty demeaning outfit, to be frank. But they, you're a plebe. So that's what you're called as a freshman. I thought the training, I thought the harassment, so to speak, would be done in a couple months, like basic training. And what I discovered was that the summertime, which was when it started, was really brutal, but it would only get worse during the academic year because in the summertime, there was only one upperclassman for every 10 of us freshmen. But in the, when the seniors turned from the, from the fleet, they said, there'd be three upperclassmen to every freshman. You could not drive in a, in a car. You couldn't go to a bar. Crazy things like you had to, inside the dormitory, you had to run everywhere in a straight line and you couldn't turn your head. If, in fact, if they caught you turning your head, they would put a shoebox on your head with, with, with holes cut out to keep you focused on sort of like the discipline of marching. It was a lot. Uh, and you couldn't talk, no fraternization. So you couldn't have a girlfriend. You can't get married while you're in midshipman. Be honest, you weren't thinking about it because you're so damn busy and you couldn't go to sleep. Uh, during the day, you couldn't even sit on your bed. Uh, and then when you ate, you had to sit on the first three inches of your chair 
So anyhow, that's that's the plebe year. Did you ever want to just quit? No, I think because I voluntarily chose it. And what I would say, it's a real learning experience of what, I mean, actually even having gone through these terrible lockdowns we've gone through with the pandemic, you do learn you can survive any loss of freedom. Like it's not, you don't have to like it, but you can survive it. You just get into survivor mode. The only way to not be harassed would be to go for a run, call them sort of do an outer perimeter. You know, I think it was like a five mile run at the academy yard. And so that was your alone time. So I would get into that zone of just exercising. Also to manage my mental sort of fatigue. Exercise in sports became a big part of my outlet. So what advice would you give to my listeners that haven't got that regimen in terms of how they deal with their circumstances? And we've gone through an extended period of lockdown, but even going out of it, uncertainty, insecurity, forces of change that are happening. What what advice can you draw upon the time you're at the Naval Academy that says, think about doing these things? There is a resilience uh, to the human spirit. You are able to endure a lot and then bounce back to normalcy. Part of getting through something like that. And sadly, during our lockdowns here, we didn't, you know, the government was not encouraging exercise or fitness, right? In fact, even in Ontario, the gyms are still at half capacity when you can go to hockey you have a full capacity. So I don't think we've been well led, but exercise was, was a big part of both my, my physical spirit and my mental spirit and also camaraderie. So what we did have is we had our classmates who were enduring the same thing. In some ways, these lockdowns have been worse for some people because of social isolation and you can't commiserate with others at the same level electronically as you can in person. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. You can download this episode or any episode of Chatter That Matters wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Sean Francis talks about true patriot love and then takes us on a path towards a healthier, stronger and happier you. I went to the cemetery where 1,700 of my comrades lay buried. And a man approached me with three children. We're going to the big parade tomorrow, but I brought them here today to show them what was necessary and what was done so that we have our freedom. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My guest today is Sean Francis. Sean co-led the 2012 Expedition Everest Base Camp. With them, 12 injured Canadian soldiers. And together, they raised funds and awareness for the True Patriot Love Foundation and injured veterans. He has since led two more, one to the North Pole and one retracing the steps of Canadian explorer George Douglas. So, Sean, the foundation True Patriot Love that you started is a leading organization supporting military members, veterans, and their families. I get your connection given what you did with the U.S. Naval Academy, but you've made this a life passion and pursuit. Why? Like I had explained earlier, I had this uh, romantic notion about doing something different. I had uh, a fascination with the military, but frankly, it ended pretty much on my graduation from Annapolis, partly because I was commissioned the Canadian Army, but I was disappointed with what I saw with respect to how the military was resourced in Canada. Really, it's sort of a general public malaise and appreciation for the military. Didn't think much about the military until really 9-11. And of course, soon after that, the Allied forces invaded Afghanistan. It should be a reminder to Canadians that Canada actually was involved in the very, very early days. And General Hillier, who ran our Canadian military at the time, he was actually the 
NATO commander of all forces in Afghanistan. That was probably around 2003. So we had Canada involved, and then I had sort of memorials around everything that happened around 9-11. And then, of course, all my American friends are going off to serve in Afghanistan or Iraq. And I got very involved with veteran philanthropy in the U.S. because I had natural connections there. And frankly, that's where most of the veteran philanthropy was happening. Started to, to host an event where we would mentor and, and provide scaffolding for U.S. veteran charities. And it disappointed me that I wasn't doing something more for Canada because, after all, I'm Canadian. And I met General Hillier around 2007. And at the time, he was our now chief of defense staff. So he, he, re- he well knew the U.S. scene, totally understood the appreciation and support the American forces had and, and said, you're, you're, you're quite right. I mean, there's really nothing going on in Canada, so much so that he had started some skunk work charities to support Canadian uh, military families uh, and, and needed to raise money for them. So I said, look, I'll tell you what, I'll host a gala dinner and that might be just a way to kick this off and also give some appreciation back to, for our forces and try to connect them to the Canadian business community. And that's what happened. It ended up uh, being an over 2,000 person gala dinner with all the, you know, the big wigs uh, as honorary chairs. And, and I think all the former prime ministers of Canada. And we even had, you know, Prince Charles uh, come in, you know, live by video. We raised over $2 million and, and we named the, uh, the event, the True Pitch You Love Gala Dinner, taking words from our national anthem about what does True Pitch You Love really mean. And we created a foundation around it because we wanted to be able to tax receipt. We had lots of uh, help from the government to accelerate that. So here we had a foundation. We had great success with raising money. And we were still in Afghanistan. So I thought, gosh, it would be remiss of us if we didn't continue it. In other words, was it a one and done or do we do this again? And that really became what's now the largest veteran charity, national charity in Canada. Uh, other than the Legion. So you led an expedition of 12 injured soldiers, and it became a documentary on CBC. What was the motivation behind that? Again, it was some serendipity. I was approached by a film producer who had done a documentary of a charitable expedition on related to veterans going to Kilimanjaro. But on that expedition, there were some veterans, and it occurred to him veterans would really benefit from something like some sort of an expedition and he could document their stories. I thought it was a great idea. It was super exciting. And, and you know, partly I wanted to go to Nepal. And, and of course, I support veterans. We conceived of a fundraising strategy where we would have civilian participants who would pay pay to go, pay more than they would normally for something like this. And, and, and in addition, fundraise. And that became the model for future expeditions. But we we did do it and we went to Everest base camp and we climbed a mountain adjacent to Everest and it's called March to the Top. And we documented all these veteran stories. The civilians aren't aren't really in the documentary, but it was uh, profoundly moving for them as well. In Canada, unlike the US, most people don't know someone in the military uh, and certainly not someone injured. And they themselves had never done something as physical as this, right? So you have both the, you know, your remote, a remote part of the world and you're physically exerting yourself totally out of your comfort zone and you're getting exposed to to people who did this on a daily basis in Afghanistan. Uh, So it was really emotionally uh, life-changing, I think, for everybody, including the veterans who also felt underappreciated and disconnected from the other communities in Canada. So they became more connected. When you talk about 12 injured soldiers, did you leave thinking that some might not be able to make it to the 
end goal or was it, how, how did you come together as a group? I did have another experience prior to this going to Nepal with some friends and we climbed uh, Mount Rainier, which is, you know, has a glacier. It's, it's, I thought I was climbing a big ski hill maybe that I'd find in Colorado, but it's certainly not that. It's extremely difficult. But I remember what they said. They said, listen, success is not summoning. Success is making it back to the parking lot alive. Our producer expert uh, on the march to the top, the Himalayan trip, said effectively the same thing, right? Summiting is, is not the objective. It's the journey. It, it sounds like such a cliche, but it's so true. And I think lost them because I know people, many people climbing Everest these days, they, that's their sole objective uh, to the point of loss of life or limb. What we knew is we would just take these veterans and civilians and just take them out of their comfort zone, documenting them being out of their comfort zone uh, and how that affected them would be the story. What advice can you give to people to leave their comfort zone in real life? I mean, not everybody can go to the base camp in Everest, but what you talk about in terms of a journey and discovering what you're capable of, any thoughts on that in terms of people that are listening saying, I'm stuck, I'm, in the, I'm running in cement, I'm not moving my life forward? It's a great question. I, you know, I think- you know, and what I tell my my sons too is is part of life is uh, showing up. Like it's amazing how many things you get involved with, where you realize, oh, I'm the only guy who volunteered, right? I told my my middle son's at a U.S. university and he's looking for interesting things to do, maybe student politics. And I said, hey, you should run for class, you know, office. You'd be the class president. He goes, well, that would be really hard, difficult. Right? Wouldn't it be? And I'm like, you'd be amazed that there may not be anyone running against you, right? Like it's it's one of those things where most people, you know, don't show up, right? So like you see these people who do all these these incredible things and like half the time it's nowhere near as as difficult or competitive as you think it might be. You know, we put these barriers in front of us mentally about like you you described uh, earlier about surfing, right? And and your board's the size of an aircraft carrier. But what that means is like you just, just like you can go out and surf, but you don't need to be on a skinny board that you have no stability on and like can't get up ever, right? You can you can start and actually just feel good by being on the ocean and being able to stand up on a board, right? And progressively you get better. But you also have to book the trip. You know, you have to just sort of decide, you know, you have to put a marker down and say, okay, next February. I'm going to go to Costa Rica and I'm going to learn how to surf and my board's going to be the size of an aircraft carrier, but I'm going to have fun. You know, maybe I'll get into surfing, who knows? But most people don't, they just don't decide. Like they don't put a marker down and say, this is what I'm going to do. That would be my advice, which is we have mental obstacles that are made up uh, often and you just have to put one foot forward. You know, sometimes I simply booking you know, a trip or in people who are not fit, right? It's like a massive obstacle to think, you know, can I lose weight or can I like get into the gym? And it's like, you simply need to make that, you know, first decision, which could be a small decision, right? Which is I'm not going to have sugar in my coffee anymore. Let's see if I can do that. And then I'm going to book a fitness session with a trainer or I'm going to go to a fitness class or I'm going to do something, you know, a walk, you know, a walking group in my neighborhood. I'm just going to book it. That's sort of the, the progression of the journey as opposed to, oh, I'm going to lose... 25 pounds, I'm going to hit the gym every day like this, or I'm going to, you know, be uh, some sort of expert surfer, you know, uh, on a foil. <laughs> like, if you put that as your goal, like it may never happen, you won't even start. It's Tony Chapman, you're listening to Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. When we come back, I'm going to chat with Sean Francis. If you could see him, this guy looks like an athlete. I mean, this guy is ripped, he's strong, but we're going to start his journey on health when he's 
after the Naval Academy where he's overweight, drinking too many sodas. From that point on, we're gonna continue to uh, follow this incredible passion he has for helping you get healthier. Hi, this is Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. RBC and Rexall have teamed up to make your journey to better health and wellness easier, simpler, and more rewarding. Simply link your eligible RBC cards to Rexall's Be Well program to get rewarded. To learn how, visit rbc.com slash Rexall. Your health and wellness matters to RBC. Eat, move, think. Eat, eat, move, think. Move. Eat, move, think. Think. Eat. Okay, so what is eat? Eat is... You are what you eat. Move. Move is basically... If you don't use it, you lose it. And think. It's the foundation for everything. It all ties in together, basically, right? Like, it's, it's like... Yeah, it's collectively the path to a healthier, happier life. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My special guest is Sean Francis. Sean, when, when I was reading about you, you got out of the academy, got a desk job, and suddenly looked in the mirror one day and said, this ripped naval guy who people said you have to be fit to be in the military, you're packing on some pounds and drinking a lot of soda. So what was that sort of moment that made you shift and say, that's not the life I want to live? Well, I mean, this is not an advertisement for MedCan because it's it's true. My doctor at MedCan said, you know, you really could. I had my physical at MedCan. He said, you could lose some you know, you could lose some weight. I'm like, what are you, I said, what are you talking about? Athlete in the university and I feel pretty good and I work out. He goes, well, you know, your body fat's a little is up and your BMI and you can't eat like you were, you know, when you were in university. And so I said to my wife, can you believe he said I should lose, you know, a little bit of weight? And she's like, yeah, I, you know, you know, I, you know I'm, not, not, I'm judging you, honey, but maybe he's got a point. So I knew, <laughs> I'm like, oh gosh, okay. So, so, but I, I talked a little bit about making a small step forward. And I really had terrible eating habits because, again, from the Naval Academy, if you're an athlete of any level, you actually get fed more. You you sit on something called team tables and you're eating constantly as much as you can and you're working out as much as you can to get body mass up. Because if you're, you're building muscle and you have a lot of activity, you're burning a lot of that as well. But then you go into the more sedentary work world, your, your amount of physical activity goes down exponentially, even if you are doing a, a workout. And if your food intake stays the same, I mean, it's, it's such a basic concept. So anyhow, I was, I was on that journey, not realizing it. Uh, and the first step was I gave up soda. That was really the beginning of, of that sort of weight journey. And so I've made really progressively micro changes over 20 years to my diet and exercise regime to kind of get to sort of the body fat percentile I want to be at. And I'm not even totally, you know, it's, it's still a struggle, uh, to be honest. Over lockdown, I think I gained, I wasn't able to do the long runs and everything I wanted to do. So I probably gained 10 to 15 pounds, to be honest, and had that same like, oh my God, what's happening? Uh, and have thankfully lost, you know, most of it. Again, through the micro changes. But I have all sorts of friends and people go on these fad diets or they go to some sort of spa weekend. And I think, you know, they can be helpful, but it's not typically sustainable. And most of the research says it's unsustainable. So I think you have to buy into it over a lifetime, make achievable changes over time 
to your diet and exercise. So let's talk about, you've compressed this journey of life that you're on. You started with the book, Eat, Move, and Think, The Path to a Healthier, Stronger, Happier You. It's now a podcast. It's a series of articles and stuff. Let's go back to the book it, it, because it's very snackable. It's like short little chapters, lots of great interviews. What caused you to say, I'm going to share everything I know with people that matter to me? I had this personal journey, which I have described of, of trying to be more healthy, to be honest. In addition, I run a healthcare company, a preventive healthcare company. And every day, we're inundated with research and, and news articles and people asking about new medical technology and diet and fitness. I'm reading constantly, to be honest, just and, and seeing what competitors are doing and what new companies are doing. And there's so, there's so much happening in preventive healthcare and wellness in general. It's really confusing uh, of what you should be doing. And because I do interview people and have so much access to, to this information, plus a bunch of experts at MedCan, that I will constantly ask them, well, what do you think of this diet? Or what do you, you know, what do you think of avocado? Or wouldn't it be great if I could put this in a format that would be accessible to both really our employees uh, at MedCan and clients in a, in a broader audience? And, and that was really the genesis of it. And the theme, everybody's looking for a pill that's going to help you live longer. And it just kept coming back. There is no pill yet. There are pills that are being investigated, but there's no pill yet. Could we boil it down into something easily understandable for our clients? And also as a way to organize the MedCan business around. The book really was a a way for me to frame uh, a lot of my thoughts and research on healthy living. I like the way it goes, eat well, move well, and think well. So give us some highlights of some of the lessons learned from both the podcast, which is an incredible podcast, and the book. One thing you know I did learn is that it doesn't really matter how much coffee you have, unless it really affects you from a stimulant perspective and you're taking it before you go to sleep, and then it affects your sleep. But the major takeaway on the eat part which it will not surprise anybody because it is widely discussed, is it's you know, that Mediterranean diet. It's the most correlated with longevity and less disease. Michael Pollan headline of, you know, eat mostly green, not too much. Because if you eat too much, you're going to put on weight. The evidence says that mostly green is better, uh, non-processed foods. It might be difficult to action if you live in a socioeconomically not privileged area where you only have access to processed foods. The, the biggest uh, risk factor other than age is obesity in exercise. But yeah, that Mediterranean diet is, is correlated with longevity, basically less heart disease, less cancer, less Alzheimer's and uh, better mood. So let's talk about move well. I mean, we, you've already talked about being, you know, exercise is very important. Yeah. A lot of people just sort of, they're pushing themselves in chairs and they're pushing themselves in front of Zoom. How do they start adopting an exercise regime that really matters to your health, that has the positive impact? So we talked about the Mediterranean diet, but eat green, not too much. I mean, that's, if you can do that. And then if you can get exercise in every day, I mean, that's my, that's what I, moving every day, right? So we have the 10,000 steps. I don't know this, how good the science is on 10,000 versus 7,000 or 12,000. But that said, one thing I did do over the pandemic was do mostly walking meetings. Of course, you couldn't be inside. Simple things like that. If you can organize stuff you do around walking, that would be just an easy way to get 
going. Even like, you know, it's always remarkable. Like you look at golfers and so many, so many of these golf courses now, everyone's on a golf cart or, but, but just think like if you just walked your golf game, that's actually great exercise. Carry your bag even better. That's really something that should be aspirational because it also says that your, your boom and dancing, your muscle mass isn't probably where it needs to be. You should be able to carry your bag and walk an 18 hole golf course into your 80s. But because people aren't walking enough, think about it. They're taking a golf, they're too heavy and they're taking a golf cart around and their walk is like stepping off the golf cart and they're having a beer, you know, processed food and fries. And here's something that could be healthy. And we turned it into something that's not healthy. And that would be really where Western society is. So you need, you know, walking and then start to get in real exercise. And I talk about it in the book, but there's two pillars to that. One is your cardio, your length of life, right? So people who have good cardio correlated with VO2 max, they live longer. So cardio is your length of life. And then your quality of life is your resistance training, right? So that's your ability to have stability. Uh, meaning you're you're stable and you can you know get up out of a chair unassisted, which surprisingly many people cannot as they age. And it doesn't have to be in a gym; it could be with body weight training. What's your ability to do stuff? I ski. I, I know people that are skiing well into their 80s, uh, 90s even. You can do it, um, but you can't do it unless you sort of embrace some sort of, you know, exercise regime, which doesn't mean going to Gold's Gym, right? Like I said, you can do stuff with with body weight and sort of act a living alone. And the final thing, which I really liked the way you connected it all was this sense of think well. And one of your podcasts, you talked to Dr. Felice Jacobs, he's author of Brain Changer. What did you learn about the information between the brain and the gut? Well, again, I mean, we go back to the Mediterranean diet and it's like, it's so fascinating how it's connected to everything. And it's like, is it correlated or causative? But she discovered uh, through her research, and she's a renowned neuropsychiatrist, her research uh, showed that the Mediterranean diet was correlated with sort of less mood disorders, less mental health issues. What are those bacteria or ingredients in the you know microbiome that, that might be causative of that. She says, I'm not sure that she she knows that, but what she does know is that, you know, through the research, that Mediterranean diet is highly correlated with people who have fewer mental health conditions. My special guest is Sean Francis, CEO of MedCan, a compelling book, podcast that he's written all about how we can live longer and live better. You know, if you look at the math right now, healthcare is in a crisis. We are spending so much and our population is really just starting, the boomers are just starting to get old when you think about it. How do we make it work going forward? You're, you, you talked about earlier that you're, you know, you read about all the technologies and all the things happening. Paint us a picture of healthcare in the next couple of years. There's the exciting side of how technology may help us live longer, but there's the other public policy side of it, which is how do we get access to that and where will it likely end up? It's exacerbated, frankly, by the pandemic. Governments, even in, in the United States, are the largest funders of healthcare. We've now indebted ourselves to levels never seen since, I think, the Second World War. People are retiring later, but not in sufficient quantity that our gross domestic product growth is sustainable. There's more of an entitlement feeling by the population that I should have whatever healthcare is available for free. 
and we may not necessarily be healthy, right? So we're able to stay alive longer through medical interventions. What's the cost of helping someone to live one more year, you know, even if it's with multi-interventions, right? So I think the perception is, or certainly the society as we've seen through COVID is like, we'll pay anything, right? Like any death is bad. It's unbelievable to me, uh, less of a US issue because they have a more robust private market, but it's unbelievable to me that in Canada, with all the money that has been spent, borrowed and spent uh, through the pandemic, that we really haven't expanded any capacity in healthcare, right? It's, it's unbelievable that we have provinces still locked down because they only have a few hundred ICU beds uh, and have really no plans to have more ICU beds, right? So they would rather lock down their entire economy than to put money into expanding healthcare capacity. What would you have done differently if you had your hand on the rudder, knowing what you know now about COVID, the economy? How could we approach that better? More transparency. I think there's been so many mixed messages from you know government officials and scientists and physicians, right? So it's been an extremely confusing and negative uh, time. One would be, I think people should be transparent about the evidence and the risks um, as opposed to deliberately uh, exaggerating them at times and or, uh, you know, getting into sort of polarization of different groups. It's become so heavily politicized uh, as opposed to like what's really right for society as a whole. I think public health used to and might still be directed that way, but it's been also uh, politicized so heavily. How do you feel about the speed by which these vaccinations came on the market and how society was herded to take it? Well, a few things. One is, you know, I wonder what we'd we be doing if we didn't get the vaccine, right? Because there was no certainty we would, right? So it's a, it's a miracle we actually do have the vaccine. I don't really know if we would be well-equipped to know what we would have done without it. We, we certainly can't stay locked down forever. And my feeling then around the vaccine is that it's an amazing technology. It, it is true. It's a new technology. It's come onto the market extremely quickly, and it's gone through uh, evidence-based trials that have shown it's it's extremely effective. And this is the problem. This is the authenticity and transparency of government officials and, and public health. Like If you're flip-flopping and, and actually then admitting that you're lying to people at times, and then you're like, oh, wait, wait a second, with the vaccines, I'm not lying. They're amazing, right? You just can't quickly get back your credibility when you've lost your credibility in so many ways leading up to the vaccines. So Sean, I've been a patient of MedCan for years. Do you think what you're doing here can be adopted in terms of healthcare everywhere, where it's the patient versus these, what I consider a lot of healthcare, a lot of silos with not a lot of drawbridges? It could be. I think with technology proliferation, it'll become, the barriers to doing so will, will they won't evaporate, but it will be easier. But on the other hand, there is so much government intervention in subsidization, if not right, right reimbursement for healthcare. It is unlikely because it's not a natural market. It's directed by bureaucracy. We thrive because we're private and we are reimbursed almost solely through the consumer. And the consumer drives our services. What, you know, what do they want? And we give them what they want. Government reimbursement, the provider is driven by what the government pays for. And so it's not organized around the patient. There's a lot of rhetoric and marketing saying, saying that it is but it's not. So what are you going to do next now? I mean, you're young, you've had so many accomplishments. There's so much that you're doing with your podcast to uh, share knowledge. What's next? Professionally, you know, I'm, st I'm, I'm running MedCan and I'm, I'm still enjoying it. And we're 
I mean, frankly, the larger we get, the more exciting it is because the more resources I have to do what I what I wanted to do. I want to expand nationally and even internationally. In addition, uh, True Patriot Love is is uh, I'm really proud of what that organization has been able to achieve, and and I see veteran causes continuing. I worry that if I'm not involved, right, it's been one of those things where you know we really were one of the first organizations to to raise a ton of money for veteran causes in Canada. So I, I worry a bit that if I'm not involved, I don't, I don't want it to waver at all. Sean Francis, it's been a pleasure to have you on Chat of the Matters. Yeah, thank you, Tony. I'm super delighted to, to be with you and, and great discussion. So if you're a fan of this podcast, you know that my go-to person, the lifeline when we're dealing with happiness, mental health, coping skills, is Amy Deacon. She's a mental therapist at the Toronto Wellness Counseling one of Canada's voices in terms of what we can do to make sure that as a individuals and as a nation, we're as healthy as we can be. Amy, welcome back to Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much, Tony. So happy to be here. Amy, this episode really, there's two currents running through it. One is Sean Francis, you know, the founder of True Patriot Love and all he's doing to support military veterans and their family. And Sean Francis, the CEO of MedCan, talking about how we must take it upon ourselves as well to be healthier and happier. I couldn't think of a better person to talk to because you've actually worked across both of those currents. So first, I want to just your, your experience with veterans. What, what kind of work have you been doing? I worked for um, an addiction treatment center where soldiers were returning from Afghanistan back to Canada and were presenting with very intense symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, and substance abuse disorder. So that was sort of my first exposure to the military. It was overwhelming in terms of what these men and women absorb in terms of crises, in terms of their systems being flooded with fear and really having to process what they've been through and then learn how to adapt healthy coping mechanisms to kind of reclaim their their health, reclaim their sense of normalcy, reclaim their sense of joy, because a lot of that can be lost uh, in the thick of battle. Do you think we're doing enough as a nation to support and honor the people that have gone to battle for us? I really do think that we could do better. I think continuing to be mindful of what these men and women go through, what they experience, what they endure, and to really normalize their need for mental health services. I think that we've done that really well um, at large, but I think that the military is still, it's, it's still a hard shell on the outside that we need to continue to crack. I'm always so appreciative when you offer people your strategies for helping them cope with the realities of today. You know, and everybody chases happiness, but this is a tough world to be happy in. We've got to stop thinking that happiness is around the next corner. Happiness will happen once we get the job. Happiness will happen once we get the baby. Happiness will happen once the pandemic is over. Happiness is one of those things that I find so many of us feel like we're constantly chasing. And the truth of it is that if we are not able to find some semblance of joy and happiness with what we have right now, we will be constantly living in a world where it never feels like enough. In order for that to happen, I think we've got to slow down. We live in a world where we are constantly busy. We are constantly doing. And I think that happiness demands that we slow down and reflect on what is good in our current life, whether it's fresh air, whether it's a cup of coffee, whether it's another day to make things right, whether it's in our own lives, in our relationships, within our careers. Amy Deacon, I hope I can get you to come back time and time again, because each time you are just such a talented 
voice and force of positive change. And I'm so proud to have you on the show and to know you as a friend. Thank you so much, Tony, me as well. Someone once told me that money can't buy you happiness, but it does allow you choices. And if you're smart and you make the right choices, you can go after your desired outcome. My entire career, I've always chased intellectual wealth and emotional wealth over financial wealth. So as we end this episode, first of all, a standing ovation to Sean Francis for true patriot love, for doing what he can to support our military, our veterans and their families. Because these people go to war for us, are there to protect us, and we need to do everything we can to get them back the life that they deserve. Second though, Sean Francis is just, his whole belief in what we need to do as a country to get the healthcare that we deserve, the healthcare that we expect. Sometimes taking on status quo head on, and maybe the pandemic has given us more permission to do that because we had no choice but to move at the speed of that virus. And finally, everything that Sean Francis talks about in terms of our happiness and our wellness, that so much of that turn is a matter of choices. Make the right choices, and more often than not, that desired outcome will come about. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.